0: and welcome back to the Faculty of Horror, podcasting from the horrid halls of academia. I'm Alex West with... Andrea Subasati And, uh, Andrea, I'm ready to go all in. And, um, let's buy a fucking house. Let's
1: get a mortgage. I'm sure we could find something in our budget in Waterloo?
0: Oh, I feel like an undeveloped land could be a great option for us. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, Something terrifying, but Mm -hmm. that's also a new build. Mm -hmm. Actually, we're just joking because uh, like many of our contemporaries, we may never be able to afford a house (laughs) or property or a piece of land or anything like that.
1: Certainly not in this real estate environment as we have in Toronto at the moment and my whole life.
0: But um, that's not to say we don't have a opinions about it. It's not to say horror doesn't have opinions about that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We are going to talk about two, I would say iconic films to classic films two classics i'd say yeah yeah that really delve into the fear and anxiety of white home ownership yeah they tackle it from different ways but i feel like there's a really good venn diagram where these two films overlap totally
1: yeah that was entirely your call you suggested that we tackle these two together and i think that was a great call particularly because i realized that i had never actually seen the amityville horror I Uh good for you. Well, yeah. Well now I kind of know what no I, I do know why. It's because I read the book mm. as a kid and i was like this sucks <laughs> this is boring it's not very scary it's dumb i still remember the cover of it like it was just such a pulpy looking paperback but it looked like all the stephen what kings if the that letters I was...
0: turns into like the devils into tale? like a devil tale yeah. yeah yeah
1: but it felt like a classic and i was like this is so popular and well known it's got to be good it's not and then when i heard that the movie was pretty much a carbon copy in all the meaningful ways I just felt like I'd seen it and I still feel that way you
0: know? Yeah, yeah. Both of these films, we're talking obviously today about the Amityville horror from 1979 and Poltergeist from 1982. Mm-hmm. And both of these films, as I was mentioning, are um, iconic and overlap in a lot of themes. But neither of these films are particularly my favorite. Mm-hmm. But I do think they provide some really great ways for us to start investigating some themes, ideas, and politics that we haven't really touched in a real way, mm-hmm. or certainly not in a long time, and that's kind of why I was really curious about digging into them today. Right
1: on. Cool. Well, I feel the exact same way. Should we get right to
0: it? Well, I thought maybe before we dive into the first film, I can lead us off with a quote from a Real Housewife.
1: Oh, the eternal wisdom of the Real Housewives finally make it into the faculty of horror.
0: For anyone out there who doesn't know, in my personal life and the rest of my life, I am a really big Real Housewives fan. Mm -hmm. I love it. I watch it all the time. I just really love them, and they're a great way to take the edge off, um, or just women screaming at each other about really benign things. You know, I, I love it. reality TV, and I love, like, really contrived
1: TV drama, and I love you, and I'd <laughs> love to meet you on that level, but I
0: just can't get into it. We can't all be perfect, Andrew. Ah, I wish I could be perfecter so for you. close. <laughs> um, but, so in, in thinking and, and writing and watching these two films in particular, particular i kept reverting back to this quote okay um and this quote stems from the real housewives of new jersey uh-huh. and it is their og housewife teresa Giudice, or judice depending on which season you're in real housewives fans will get that she's been in every single season she's what they call an og of the housewives franchise okay i have a very like complicated relationship with her um as a as a fan anyway Okay. Th- that's a whole other thing maybe one day i'll get into it on patreon or something anyway season one episode one of Real Housewives of New Jersey. They're introducing all the housewives and how they're all rich and what they do and what their kind of personalities are like. And you meet Teresa and she's this, you know, youngish mom of several girls. And she talks about her husband being an entrepreneur. Spoiler alert, uh, they were both indicted for fraud and embezzlement and both spent time in prison. And then her husband got deported. That was around like season six I think. Anyway, season one, episode one, she's talking about how her husband is, like, making all this money, and they decided that they're going to move out of their house into somewhere much, much bigger, and that they're actually building their house, Mm -hmm. and they build this huge, gaudy mansion. Like, they have angel wings as door handles. It's so cringe. But they're talking to her in her confessional, and she's talking about why she's building a house. Okay. And she says, I didn't want to go house shopping because— I just skeeve looking at other people's houses. I don't want to live in someone else's house. That's gross. Wow. And you don't like these shows, Andrea. That's a doozy. No secondhand houses for me. No, but I think, as we will come to learn in this episode, there is no such thing as a secondhand house.
1: No, and there's no such thing as a clean slate either.
0: All right, let's dive
1: into it. Let's travel back to 1979 for the classic, in name only, Amityville horror. It's the
2: kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry, when there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. What do you think? I love it. James Brolin, Margot Kidder, Rod Steiger in the Amityville Horror. God's peace in this house. Father Delaney, there's something very important. the Lutz family moved into their dream house. They were running for their lives. What happened to them is an experience in terror you will never forget. And you will believe in the Amityville Horror. From the best-selling book that made millions believe in the unbelievable, the Amityville Horror.
1: With a crime scene, Ronnie DeFeo Jr. traveling from room to room and murdering his family members with a shotgun. The police smoke and shake their heads sadly while body bags pass by. One year later, a real estate agent is eagerly showing a house to a couple of newlyweds who are aware that terrible murders happened there, but the waterfront house is beautiful and within their budget. As George and Kathy Lutz move in with Kathy's three kids from a previous marriage, we learn that Kathy is at least somewhat Catholic and that she wants to put up a crucifix. George doesn't seem to care. While the couple are out, Father Delaney enters the home to bless it, but the house resists him, making him violently ill and causing blisters on his hands when he tries to phone the Lutzes later. Throughout the rest of the film, we see him pleading with the diocese to help the Lutzes, but they won't, and he ultimately goes blind and catatonic or something, trying to help them. (laughs) (laughs) It's so stupid. Kathy's aunt, who is a nun, has a similar experience. Upon entering the house, she gets sick and needs to leave immediately. Meanwhile, paranormal events start stacking up at the house. George grows distant and miserable. Money goes missing. An imaginary friend becomes sinister. Accidents happen. And they discover a portal to hell in the basement. (laughs) I'm describing a horror classic here, Alex. Have some respect. (laughs) After Kathy learns that the house was built on, you guessed it, an ancient burial ground, George tries to kill the family with an axe, but Kathy is able to snap him out of it. The family flees, and a final intertitle reads that they never returned to retrieve their stuff.
0: Which is the scariest part, really. I'm really sorry. Why? It's so silly. All I can think now is the scene, my favorite scene in the whole movie is when the nun throws up. She drives away It has to pull over because she She up. fucking gives it. A- <laughs> I lost it at this moment in, in absolute cackles of yeah. laughter. It's silly. It's a deeply silly film, yet I feel like this film has kind of embedded itself in our cultural imagination as something much more sinister, as something much more scary, because of the kind of mystique around it.
1: Yeah, it is incredibly popular. And I think for as silly as the movie is, it is based very closely on this book, which is kind of, you know, it's a novel, but it is based on an interview with the Lutzes, uh, based on 45 hours of tape recorded recollections and uh, the two are very very similar. Um, The book kind of elaborates that the Lutz has got a real bargain price of 80k 80k
0: I mean, I I also enjoyed the part where they say in the film, I think it was Marco Kidder says, you know, this house is $80,000. It might as well be $800,000. And I was like, oh, if only a house were $800,000 these days in Toronto.
1: Mm -hmm. So yeah, the family was told about the DeFeo murders by the real estate agent. They move in anyway. Uh, George's friend was the one who insisted on having the house blessed and the priest who was called father mancuso in the book why they changed that i do not know um does so and hears a voice say get out you know as we see uh calls george and advises him to stay out of the second room and there's another attempted blessing and after that uh they flee and they declined to give more detail to the book's writer jay anson at this point because it was quote too frightening so, I think, you know, part of the reason this property has so much cachet, first of all, it is a huge juggernaut of a franchise within the horror genre. I think we actually, one time in an episode, we determined that it had the biggest franchise in horror, like the most sequels and prequels. It's very and possible. It's huge. And it has that same, it has that same unfortunate benefit as The Conjuring in that it scratches the itch for those people who really love true crime paranormal mm-hmm. stories uh, the fact that this is based on a so-called true story the fact that the Warrens have a tie into this story so I think on Wikipedia it even has Amityville as part of the Conjuring universe
0: yeah it's the uh, opening scene of Conjuring 2 mm-hmm. where Ed and Lorraine go to um, deal with Amityville and unfortunately Ed's acoustic guitar skills do not help in that situation oh rats right. mm, no. you'd think that they drive the evil out if he was playing that much acoustic guitar like that
1: well Well, you know, uh, sometimes a good old family patriarch only goes so far.
0: But I mean, this film does like have very, very goofy moments in it. And the franchise does become increasingly goofy. I mean, do we need to talk about Amityville 4? Yes, we do. I have not seen it. I, but have. I have edited a column
1: penned by one Stacey Ponder. She wrote about it in the Versus column for issue 200. I think it was like, what is the best worst horror sequel? And it concerns
0: a haunted fucking floor lamp it really does and it is spectacular
1: i'm dying to see it it's so good it's a tv
0: movie right yeah um it, it's absolutely ridiculous i know i can only rent it on uh youtube um stacy has been a real champion of this film yes. i think since like her final girl blog and gay lords of darkness they did a full episode on it did they oh so good highly recommend watching amityville 4 and then listening to the gay lords of darkness episode on let's it let's link it it's mwah, so one of the big people to contribute to the discourse on Amityville Horror, especially after the film was released, was one Stephen King. Might have heard of him. Yeah. He initially wrote something for Rolling Stone, and then he wrote something a bit longer for his own book, Danse Macabre, uh, which is his kind of treatise-like very, very fucking long treatise on horror films and his other musings about other things. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of an oddball of a book, but it has some really great pieces in it. And uh, there's a few pages that he dedicates to the Amityville horror of the film. And he talks about how he wrote the piece for Rolling Stone, and then he goes to see it uh, again for a second time in Mm -hmm. a small theater in Maine, Mm -hmm. as he is wont to do. And he enjoys it more the second time, and he's really struck by this couple sitting in front of him. And uh, the woman turns to her partner at the very end of the film as the credits are going, Mm -hmm. and she just says, think of the bills. And that sent Stephen King into this whole diatribe, which again is very smart, about the Amityville horror as an economic horror film. Okay. Which I think makes total sense. And a lot of people really credit King with starting this discourse on the film, Mm. really utilizing and pinpointing several moments in the film that seem to ratchet up the horror. You know, there are so many moments in the film that really deal with the financial pressures of the Lutz family in taking on this house. You know, right off the top of the film. It's Kathy and George talking about, can they even afford this house? But it's such a great deal and you should just go for it. Uh, Kathy refers and you know, talking about her Catholic family, that she would be the first person in her family to own a home. Uh-huh. There's mentions of IRS troubles that the Lutzes were having in real life. They were trying to dodge the taxman and mm-hmm. the taxman will find you. There's also, I think, one of the most interesting scenes in the film, which we'll talk about, I think, a little bit later. The scene where Kathy's brother there's money goes missing yes, yes like the house just gobbled up his money.
1: It did. What spirit would be like, hee hee hee? Exactly. It's like Not the, the rings one, or something, the cash.
0: It'll make a nun vomit and it's going to steal your cash. That's
1: really interesting and that's very Stephen Kingy, Mr. Blue McCuller, as we've talked about many times.
0: Absolutely, and I think what King does in this piece that he writes about it in his book is he takes the conversation in a bit of a new direction because he's writing this at the time of the film's release, There. About so 79, maybe 80. uh, The book comes out shortly thereafter. Mm -hmm. And I think there is this feeling of economic hardships. and we're ready to talk about it and we're ready to have it be part of our culture and we're ready to say, actually these things aren't serving us anymore and the houses that we felt are promised to us actually come with a lot more baggage than we might be willing to handle Mm -hmm. Um, especially financially because this film is so rooted in silly supernatural stuff but also financial realities that are really crippling to so many families. Uh I found a really great quote from a literary theorist by the name of Walter Ben Michaels or WB Michaels and this is from his book The Gold Standard and the Logic of Naturalism and there's a really interesting chapter in it called Romance and Real Estate he writes think of the plight of the Amityville couple as investors in real estate having risked everything to get themselves into the spectacularly inflationary market of 1975 they find themselves owning the only house on Long Island whose value is declining The only one for a few years anyway, until rising interest rates, as intangible as ghosts but even more powerful, would begin to produce a spectral effect on housing prices everywhere. Hmm. So there is, you know, the sense of inflation was becoming a really big issue, as conservatives are very worried about now, especially Mm -hmm. in the States. And the housing market was changing, and it was beginning to change rapidly. And it was a sense that couples kind of needed to get on that ladder right right now. And I feel like that's something even I'm still hearing to this day is, you got to get on the ladder. If you don't now, if you don't get that awful shoebox condo, yeah. how are you going to keep changing it up every few years to yeah. own something else?
1: Oh, God, this is making me sad. Um, that's brilliant, though, and I I can't believe it didn't occur to me. It, it did occur to me in thinking about this film and Poltergeist together that, you know, late 70s, early 80s, this was kind of a time where two breadwinners was slowly becoming the norm, but people were also kind of resisting it. That's not, we grew up with mom at home, and so I want to have that same thing for our family. And so when it comes to Amityville, especially because this is a blended family for whatever reason, we don't know what happened to Kathy's prior relationship. We just know that, you know...
0: I think another house ate him. Oh, is that right? Yeah, bad luck with houses.
1: Bad luck with houses. But yeah, we get the sense that George Lutz is self-employed. He's a business owner owner and you know he's uh he's married this woman and now has three kids
0: he is a real house husband there you go he's uh, uh, sorry like uh, that i'm on this train now but for the maybe few people out there all of these husbands of the real housewives all like the shadier they are it's like entrepreneur businessman Yes. Yeah. i'm using air quotes here yeah but i feel like, like that all sketchy as fuck it ties into that american
1: dream of this is how it should be the guy brings home the bacon and he's an entrepreneur. He makes his own fortune. And and this is the reality that's promised to us. And I think we're going to talk about this more in Poltergeist, I'm sure. But I think there's an anxiety around resisting traditional elements that don't serve you, but also, you know, by breaking those traditions, there are ramifications to that in your lifestyle.
0: Absolutely. So, Andrea, I don't know about you, But how do you feel when you have a book or a piece of research or something you kind of had, like, socked away for another project, and then you get to apply it to something we do at Faculty of Horror? Ooh. That's how I feel about it. (laughs) Yeah. It's like you kind of already, like, pre-did your work a little Mm -hmm. bit. So I found this was something else I'd been working on, and it's been kind of shelved for the moment. And I was really happy because when I opened this book, I had already highlighted, as you love to see, Andrea. All of the points. So anyway, it was great. So much work already done. Uh, but I pulled off of my shelf in prep for this episode a book called Owning Up, Privacy, Property, and Belonging in U.S. Women's Life Writing by Katherine Adams. Mm. And there's so much fascinating stuff in this book in general, but I wanted to, for our purposes today, focus kind of on her introduction, uh, which goes through a bit of the notions of privacy and land ownership through history and how we've come to accept them as normal. So Adams talks about individual autonomy and privacy becoming widespread at the end of the European feudal system with new opportunities for private land ownership. So feudalism, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, the working class were essentially serfs or indentured to the land uh-huh. and serving a lord, and you just work the land. This was the modus operandi for Europe yeah. because agriculture was huge. Land was huge. That was the main point of everything back then. Yeah, it was the start of the capitalist pyramid. Exactly. But then as that system ended and others began, this notion of privacy and having a space of your own or a room of one's own really gained importance during industrialization, which gave rise to notion of personal home slash family time, uh, a sense to differentiate a time distinct from work and social obligations, and then your own private time, Mm -hmm. whether that's with your immediate family, on your own, with a roommate, whatever that is. That was the notion of having really two distinct spheres Mm -hmm. of personal and outside of personal. Uh, And then she writes, privacy in the 19th century pursues a fantasy of not being owned that is driven by a fear of being owned. So in a sense if we are scared to be indebted to something else, work, social obligations, whatever it is, a family, anything like that, we then seek out this, you know, desire to own our own space. Okay. You know, I think that's where a lot of, especially with Virginia Woolf, as I already kind of alluded to, a room of one's own, mm-hmm. having that space in kind of reaction to a fear of being owned or owing to someone else. Mm-hmm. The irony, of course, is almost no one can buy a property outright. No. So you wind up owing forever. <laughs> and, and she also kind of concludes that privacy is a sign of natural aristocracy. Wow. So to be able to have that is seen as a way of moving up in the world. And I also want to point out that for me, I think this is a really, a lot of really interesting stuff. But in thinking about these notions, uh, in regard to the Amityville horror, we see a lot of this is a really big move for the Lutzes. Not only do they need the space, but this is kind of an investment in their future. Mm -hmm. You know, they've got this beautiful property. It's incredible. But to take Adam's point of the kind of personal sphere versus the work and outside sphere, it doesn't always take into account what happens within the personal sphere. So in this case, when your patriarchal breadwinner goes off the rails, yeah. then the personal sphere becomes a really unsafe environment. Yeah. And that is a huge that is a huge thing to deal with. And I think we've seen rising cases of domestic violence during, you know, the COVID pandemic, mm-hmm. all kinds of things that are really scary.
1: Yeah. And definitely the bleeding of like the professional in the domestic space. I remember there was a lot of blog posts saying, you know, be sure to delineate to your desk and working from home space with the rest of your space. And I'm reading this thinking, like, who has that luxury? Not If you many. live in a studio apartment, definitely not many, especially people who are cohabiting. And yeah, my heart goes out to people who were cooped up in really tight quarters this past year.
0: And then I started to think a lot about the notion of the American dream. i uh-huh. have talked about the American dream a lot, a lot on this show. And uh, I found a really great article from the New York Times uh, all the way back— in 1988 called In the Nation, Why Owning a Home is the American Dream by Anthony De Palma. Mm -hmm. And De Palma writes that a higher percentage of people own their own home in America than in most industrialized nations. Houses have turned from a dwelling to an investment. Inflation hit the market in the 1970s, and post-war baby boomer children were now of home-buying age. This drives the prices up, it drives competition up, and then we see this housing market emerge from something that everyone has one of to, oh, now it's competitive. Now I'm trading up. Now I'm hedging my bets. Now I'm doing things that are a lot more calculated than just like, look at this house I bought. My family and I are going to live in it for the next 50 years. It's beginning to change. The government was also playing into this notion a lot at the time in the 70s. They were allowing property taxes to be deducted for personal taxes. Um, And as I was just mentioning, the resale opportunities are huge. So if you're reselling your home every few years, every few years it's going up in value. So you can just constantly kind of trade up. Mm -hmm. Um, And he also writes that home ownership is a central part of household wealth. So by avoiding taxes while trading up, if you're already on the property ladder, then you build personal equity. Mm -hmm. You are kind of keeping your money away from taxes and social programs and all the things that it goes to, and you're kind of keeping it in for yourself and your family. And, you know, maybe you're, giving to charity and other things. Hopefully you are. I don't know. But this idea of kind of hoarding wealth is really beginning to emerge as a way of being and a way of moving through the world at this point. And De Palma really gets into that houses are not necessarily homes at this point because they are changing hands so frequently. The commodities. Exactly. So neighborhoods that were neighborhoods for houses and families and whatever the fuck, um, are suddenly becoming competitive markets. Yeah. And you know, values are rising and people are buying out and, and doing all this stuff. So it's really changing the whole structure of a family life and a notion of a home and a house and, and all of those things. And to kind of wrap up some of my thoughts on this, I wanted to maybe think a little bit about the notion of a money pit. Yes. Um, great movie. Great movie. Tom Hanks. I and, used to uh, love it. I loved it, Shelley too. Long. Shelley Long. Mm-hmm. What a great movie. Um, but uh, for reference, a money pit refers to a property that has little to no visible problems, but owners can incur huge costs to its maintenance and upkeep. And I think the Amityville house is a huge fucking upkeep in this film. Yeah probably not in real life but you got a portal to hell uh huh nuns are vomiting uh the walls bleed it steals your money you got to feed the flies the amityville house becomes a source of anxiety from the outset with fears of being cash poor or house poor due to the sale the main breadwinner george seems to feel the house uh, the most from his chills to his mood swings he seems very very uncomfortable within this house mm-hmm. And in the most overt moment of this, the house literally steals Kathy's brother's money, which forces George to write what is probably a bad check mm-hmm. because we already have a sense of the money problems mm-hmm. and him scouring the house looking for the money and only finding like the little paper that held it together, like <laughs> cursing. You know, when we were talking earlier about why is this house literally stealing your money? It's because I think that was one of the great anxieties of yeah. Americans at this time. Yeah. And of who are, I think we can all accept, not telling the truth. Uh-huh. They're elucidating these fears that they were having or perceiving themselves to have. And I think metaphorically it works because my understanding is once you own a house, it just kind of, whew, you become house poor, right. which is a term that I think is fascinating because it's the notion that you don't have money on hand because you've put it all into this house that you own. Uh-huh. But somehow that's more socially acceptable than being in debt.
1: Right, because the assumption is if you can survive that poverty, the inflation will pay off in dividends. And indeed, there's a whole— not just industry, but a culture around flipping houses. If you watch HGTV for 10 minutes, it's always these house. flipping houses shows. And they just come up. This house is a piece of shit. I have no intention of living here for a second. It's, it's a money-making scheme to take this property and skyrocket its value such that uh, the community probably can't support it anymore. And yep. it's
0: fucked. It's super fucked. And I think Amityville Horror gets at that fear. Yeah. Um, the fear that you take the plunge. You put whatever you have and anything you've borrowed and what the bank lends you. Mm-hmm. And then this thing literally saps it out of you. Yeah. To the point where you can't even trust it anymore.
1: Yeah. Like God To the forbid. point where you turn on each other and your relationship goes sour. Now, you mentioned a, a minute ago that about the Lutz is lying. Mm-hmm. Now, are you having the same kind of feeling as me where these guys made a bad investment, got house poor, fled the house, and came up with this story to avoid being financially devastated by it?
0: I think that's definitely part of it. From what I understand, the Lutzes, particularly George, were already having problems with the IRS. Uh, Um, The notion that they knew there was something spooky about the house. um, I think it's all kind of involved. I mean, they're grifters, in my opinion. The Lutzes? Yeah. Yeah, But no, I think that's a totally reasonable read of it. What I could find, there's no credibility to anything that they said. You know, it was a time where there's a lot of horror that was really serving this kind of fear and the pulpy paperbacks. Mm-hmm. And they probably thought like, you know what, we can sell this story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I almost didn't even want to get
1: into this topic because if you are interested in the veracity of this story, there are podcasts out there for you. Uh, we are less interested in that. We're more interested in what the story means and how uh, how it can be interpreted. I also came across a uh, an article that talks about how home ownership is entwined with the American dream, and I came up with a link to an excerpt from a book called Ghostland, An American History in Haunted Places. I love that book. Nice, so much. So there is a chapter available online, and it's on the suburban horror of the Indian burial ground, the IBG, which is such a big, fat, fucking trope in this genre. We've talked about it before. We're going to talk about it again a little bit today but basically in this chapter he talks about how uh, the haunted house is the ultimate violation for americans because americans feel so entitled to the security of the american dream and home ownership is part of that and fundamentally i feel like these two movies that we're talking about these are modern hauntings these are contemporary families encountering ancient evil and we're seeing what they do about it but coming back to the indian burial ground it is commonly believed to have first appeared in Jay Anson's Amityville horror novel, but technically, the author claimed that the Shinnecock tribe didn't just bury their dead there, but they cooped up their, quote, sick mad and dying until they, quote, died of exposure. Now, this has been debunked. Uh, the Shinnecock never occupied that area. But I think it's interesting that the birth of this trope wasn't actually a burial ground. It was a place of abandonment or cruelty. Um, but it's a hugely enduring trope. They talk about it a lot in Woodlands Dark and Days Bewitched, which is that upcoming documentary on folk horror that's coming out this fall. But the trope was especially popular in the 80s. I think I think what's interesting about the trope is, you know, obviously it contributes to negative racist stereotypes, and the vast majority of indigenous tribes don't believe in the return of evil spirits. So even that notion is imposed and rooted in racist stereotypes. But that said, uh, I discovered that there was a bill passed in 1990, and it was called the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, better known as NAGPRA, because that's a mouthful, to protect indigenous cultural sites, not only from development but from archaeologists and researchers and of course people have to go through a lot of red tape to be protected under nagpra and the vague language makes it really easily circumvented by powerful organizations like say the trump administration or Walmart, and I have a couple of factoids. Uh, right. in, in 1998, the Walmart Corporation discovered that they were constructing a new supercenter on a mass grave of 154 Indigenous people. And more recently, in 2015, 64 Indigenous bodies were found during Walmart construction in Hawaii, and the remains waited in a trailer for over three years before they were eventually reburied. Oh my so, you know, this ickiness and like the ickiness is even ickier if you've been following uh, the headlines in Canada, the residential schools. This is not in the past. This is very much in the present. And it's something that we know to have happened, but finding the bodies and actually reckoning with it. Is different and it changes things. And I found a really great article on JSTOR called Haunted Real Estate The Occlusion of Colonial Dispossession and Signatures of Cultural Survival in US Horror Fiction. It's a mouthful, but for starters, occlusion, I was just kind of like, that's a cool word. Is that like occult illusion? It kind of is. The author argues that the continuing dispossession of indigenous Americans from the 19th century are now occluded, and that word means Both remembered and forgotten at the same time. So kind of like Mm -hmm. misremembered or selectively remembered. And the first example that the author brings out is in The Shining movie where it's a story about a man who flips out and attacks his family – set against this really fleeting mention of an Indian burial ground that has no bearing on anything other than the Overlook's fucking decor, right? It's like we're remembering it enough to mention it, but not enough to give it any real relevance. And the author calls this a, quote, rhetorical strategy of occlusion, a strategy of translating a colonial or imperial conflict into a conflict within the family itself, or of dramatizing it as a primeval ordeal between the American family and unexplained evil forces. I feel like that's exactly what we're looking at in the Amityville horror and indeed with Poltergeist, which we'll get to shortly. But this is a family turning inside out in and of itself. And, you know, the idea of the house being rotten or the ground being rotten or haunted is just kind of window dressing to divert the fact that the American dream has done us dirty. We're not getting what was promised to us because the promises were bullshit.
0: And it's a way of externalizing all of the issues of the family into this house. Like when George kind of leaves the house, he's better, Mm -hmm. you know? And it's like, oh, it's just that evil house. That's all. It's not me. It's not her. It's not the kids. It's not the structure. It's Mm -hmm. not the way we've been told to organize ourselves and our family and the financial pressure that these systems that we are born into place on us it's that fucking house that's right and we see that so much in horror fiction but that's definitely what
1: i feel like we're seeing in amityville and again in the next movie
0: Mm -hmm. i found a few really good articles about the ibg trope there's so many there's so so many and there's one in particular i want to link to in the show notes and it is called fittingly Digging Up the Indian Burial Ground trope by Shea Vassar, who I believe we also talked about recently in our Twilight episode. Ah. Um, she's a really fantastic writer and I believe part of the Cherokee Nation. We'll link it. And please read that piece because she goes into a lot of different stuff about this IBG trope and really offers some fantastic contextual thoughts and support and analysis to it, but I wanted to bring in a writer that she quotes in this piece, and a few other people do as well in some of these other articles, and I cannot find the original source piece, and it's killing me because this sounds absolutely fascinating. I think I know what you're talking about, and I have the exact same fucking problem. So if anyone out there knows what I'm about to talk about, um, and you know what the original source is, Please. please email us, send it to us tweet us, Instagram us, whatever you need to do. Um, but it's by an Indigenous writer by the name of Terry Jean. Yep. Oh, my God. And I've seen a few quotes floating around from her, and it's really, really interesting. But I'm pulling um from her five theories of the popularity of the IBG trope. Yes. Um, I'm paraphrasing, and uh, Shea Visar quotes the whole thing in her piece. Mm-hmm. So, Please use that as well. Theory number one for the popularity of the IBG trope. It was popular in Amityville horror, so it's easy to use it again. Which is fair. I I feel like that first one addresses, like, it's become satire. It's, like, spoofed in everything now. Exactly. So number two, the IBG are seemingly unmarked and could signify anything, allowing them to kind of become a catch-all for everything spooky. Uh Uh-huh. Number three, a continuation of the threat of an evil from the indigenous community which has been common since colonization number four the unknown the general population is largely uneducated about indigenous communities allowing us to project fears and anxieties onto them Mm -hmm. number five guilt settler and colonial guilt, an understanding that we were part of perpetuating a genocide and that these supernatural elements um, and supernatural beings might be trying to get back at us. Mm -hmm. Um, And as Andrea mentioned, in reading about this and thinking about the IBG trope, I couldn't help but think of what we're going through right now in Canada with the residential schools. If you don't know what the residential schools are in Canada and the issues that are coming to light right now in Canada, I know we have a lot of Indigenous listeners, and I don't want to re-traumatize anyone, so please Google that. It's out there, yeah. It's fucking out there, and it's scary and heartbreaking. And we have a lot to fucking change. Yeah. And to me, in thinking about this, it feels like such a way of... And this is why I think in in thinking about this episode, I've become more and more angry at George and Kathy Lutz Mm -hmm. because we're seeing right now the effects of colonialism. We are seeing the effects of what actually fucking happens when we stigmatize communities Mm -hmm. that we don't understand and don't try to understand as white people, as settlers. And this kind of taking of the, oh, it's an IBG and, oh, we're scared and we had money problems, but now we have this book deal and everything's fine because we further stigmatize this community feels like another use of white fragility and white violence. Totally, and it's a notion. It's part of white supremacy.
1: It's completely unnecessary because you could have just hung your hat on uh, those murders happened here. Those motherfucking DeFeos cursed this. And house. they
0: even mention on uh, on top of the I B G ground that the thing was not buried on, but supposedly is in the film. Um, that a satanic worshipper by the name of John Ketchum was yes. also there and was, and was persecuted for being a witch. So now there's a
1: witch. Like, come on. It just snowballed. And that's—I uh, wouldn't believe it to begin with. But it's just gotten so elaborate and grasping at straws.
0: And I think that's part of the fact that this film is so, like, it's based on a true story. It's the truest Fuck true all. story you ever true. <laughs> and, um, you know, not only is it kind of parsing out this blame to so many marginalized communities, particularly the indigenous community, it's—like, we can't just go back and say— Oh, it was this fictional film, and they didn't fucking know any better, and shit, that's too bad. It's more like, no, this is deep-seated, real-time, Settler, colonizer fear Mm -hmm. that is playing into this. And that's not to say those fears aren't in fictional films that have been produced. Yeah. Um, But it is to say there's, I feel like, a much more sinister quality to it because this family tried to save themselves. Again, they hoarded their white equity into blaming something else, creating a sensational story about it, and then running away yeah. And that's what we know about them. They ran away. They ran away.
1: They fucked off and they made their money back and they didn't try to make anything right. Like, I would like to think that the majority of material that utilizes uh, rule number five is rooted in guilt, but the narratives belie that. The narratives say, no, it was convenient, and I think several of those rules overlap uh, and can be applied to a lot of the IBG usage in horror, and certainly this one here. But not guilt, because there's no uh, self-awareness, and there's no retribution.
0: Not at all.
3: Mr. Plute, Homer Simpson here. When you sold me this house, you forgot to mention one little thing. You didn't tell me it was built on an Indian burial ground! No, you didn't! Well, that's not my recollection. Yeah, well, all right, goodbye.
1: He says he mentioned it five or six times.
0: Let's go, children. But in talking about white fragility and white violence and, oh, no, white supremacy, which, you know... I think we are all trying to unlearn, and um, certainly for Andrea and myself, so as white people, we work to do better and better each day. I wanted to talk a bit about the patriarchal white masculine in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the way that I was thinking about these two films together, I had mentioned, you know, thinking about the history of the houses and then the history of who is targeted In these films. And so that's why I would really like to focus a little bit of time on George. So in any kind of supernatural ghost story possession kind of film, it seems like they always go after the most vulnerable person. Mm -hmm. And that to me is so interesting that in 1979, it is the straight white man. So for the house, by attacking the person who is supposed to provide stability and is seemingly the breadwinner, it destabilizes them all. Mm -hmm. Um, The church can't help friends can't help research only helps them identify the evil and it leaves george as this unstable figure within the household that can wreak havoc at a moment's notice and everyone's kind of walking around on eggshells around him. Mm -hmm. I agree with that,
1: absolutely. However, and I feel like this is another really weak element of this film, is that Kathy is very Catholic, her aunt is a nun, George is more secular, and the whole thing with the crucifix, oh, put it there where the light will shine on, and he's like, "Mm mm-hmm. I almost felt like it was implied that he was the target because he was the unbeliever, the unfaithful, the unchristian um, who wasn't interested in the blessings and all that stupid shit that's really warrens and dumb.
0: Yeah, and I, I think that's definitely a huge— part of that anxiety. Again, it's kind of reaffirming that way of being a heteronormative white family. Mm. You know, you go to church, you believe this, your cross goes here. I didn't know the cross had to be in the light. I'm a heathen. I didn't know that. And I think those two things are true. I I think for me, I think absolutely 100% to your point, his kind of lack of religion is a huge part of it. Um, For me, I just saw him as very intrinsic to the stability of the household yes oh yeah he's a load-bearing figure
1: big time especially since he's marrying a woman with three kids it's like you're going from supporting yourself to supporting four people so i wanted to ask you this question
0: what kind of man do you think george is how would you describe him uh he has really thick
1: hair and tight pants (laughs) (laughs) honestly he's pretty dreamy Anything else? What kind of man? Um, He seems very quiet. He has like a quiet masculinity to him, almost lion-like, and he really takes to the physical aspects of housekeeping, and um, he kind of struggles to connect with the kids because he's brash and an authority figure and not very nurturing.
0: Is that what you're after? (laughs) No, I'm I'm genuinely curious because I struggled. With defining George. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, He's a big I agree. For yeah. yeah. He was totally beige for me. I agree with everything you said. The words I came up with uh-huh. when I was, like, freewheeling in my notebook, yeah, yeah. which is why you have a notebook, uh-huh. um, were rugged, strong, mm. quiet Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, Um. And I thought it was really interesting to bring in the remake for a moment. Oh, Andrea's face just lit up. No, it didn't. So the remake that came out in 2005, I rewatched it this week. And uh, to paraphrase Star Wars, when I saw the Platinum Dunes logo come up, I was like, oh, that's a name I haven't heard in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I remember liking the remake, mm-hmm. and then on the rewatch, I was like, oh, it's— kind of bland and kind of dumb and they really ratchet up the horror they tone down a lot of the church involvement and a lot of the finance talk okay there's a bit off the top
1: but no i'm good with that on paper that sounds like a worthy remake
0: yeah and it's just a bit too like jump scare heavy for Uh, me okay but the thing that i certainly remembered from it coming out in 2005 and what kind of sticks with me and is the most emblematic thing of it on the rewatch is ryan Ryan Reynolds. reynolds abs yes um so I remember kind of vaguely in the in the fog of my mind that it was a big deal when he was cast as George Lutz. Yes. Because, you know, James Brolin, he was like a rugged man man who manly manned and married Barbara Streisand and her in home shopping center which I still want to see one day. What? It's a whole other episode. But it was the notion of, you know, Ryan Reynolds was a comedic actor. He was on sitcoms. And it was going from the star of two guys, a girl in a pizza place, to he's going to be the lead in a horror movie. Mm-hmm. What? And then his physical transformation mm-hmm. into beefcake George Lutz. And literally this film will take any opportunity to show off his body. Like it actually becomes a bit gratuitous. <laughs> <laughs> At some point, I felt, you know— some things about it uh, and he's very good in the film he's he's one of the best parts of the film uh-huh. uh, Melissa George as Kathy is also really good um, but it's just a very kind of wishy-washy silly remake in, in my mind okay. but I just thought it was so interesting that for Ryan Reynolds to ascend to his next level of stardom he had to play this rugged man they softened some of the edges on George a little bit in the remake uh-huh. but it was still that he was the provider he was the this he was the that he chops wood his shirt comes off all the time. Yeah, you know he was this stable, masculine figure, and that was a really important step for Ryan Reynolds to take in his career. That kind of showed off that he had something else to do.
1: It's so weird. It's so weird that he like that is the kind of shredded physique you would need for a Marvel movie. It's not absurd. the fucking Amityville, and like those abs were made in a lab. Yes. You know what I mean? That's like synthetic protein high diet. It's weird. It is beefcake, yeah, just like you said. And why would that be a paternal figure when none of us can relate to that as, like, a dad bod? A dad bod is a thing
0: now, and it's not that. Well, and I think it was for him to go from, like, kind of slightly soft-bodied comic relief to I can still be a comic relief, but I also look like a fucking lady man with a jawline.
1: I mean, I'm not complaining. I've actually never seen the remake, but I just look at the stills. You
0: know, that might be the highlight.
1: Uh, apparently, the IRL George Lutz sued the makers of the 2005 remake for breach of contract defamation and libel and following that he trademarked the term the Amityville Horror. You would think that if they remade a fucking movie that makes you look like a Greek god, you'd be okay with it. But he's like, no, that's libelous.
0: Jesus. The real George Lutz continues to sound like a great guy is what you're saying. He
1: appears to have remained a prick until his death. Yeah, that sounds
0: about right. But I also wanted to talk a bit about masculinity in the 1970s. You know, I think gender, we're seeing it change all the time as it should, and we're moving away from this binary, and it's becoming much more fluid Mm -hmm. as it should, I think, as it was always meant to be, as it always existed as. But in the 1970s in particular, there was a period of upheaval. We talked quite a bit about this in our Stepford Wives episode with Betty Friedan's The Feminine Mystique, and then, of course, the Stepford Wives films themselves. You know, there's a really big social moment. There was also, in the 1970s, increased unemployment due to deindustrialization. Realization and the decline of manufacturing jobs. So I think you can see through that a figure like George, who's very like rugged and manly, starts to lose his place in the world. Mm-hmm. He starts to, you know, not be as useful as he once was. And I think it kind of shows that this Amityville house, this home of horror, could destroy a traditional masculinity by affecting it so deeply it shows how fallible it is it shows mm. how kind of surface it is okay you're making me like it but it's still not a great movie yeah. all right so we are going to pack up here at the amityville house we're gonna resell. Mm-hmm. we're gonna charge way more and we're gonna move back down to um the west coast we're going to move along to cuesta verde for 1982's
1: Poltergeist.
2: The house looks just like the one next to it. And the one next to that. And the one next to that. A young couple live in it. Give Ken a kiss. <laughs> you are so
1: amazing.
2: With their three children.
3: <laughs>
2: and something more.
0: Everybody, remember last night? Do you remember when you woke up and you said you were here? Uh-huh. Well, who did you mean? Who's here?
3: TV people. Something's funny going on here next door. Something, uh.
0: We were wondering if maybe you had experienced any disturbances lately.
2: What, what kind of disturbances? I
3: don't know what happens over this house. I've never sensed anything like it. That thing is in there with my baby. you are hungry
2: Now Steven Spielberg crosses a frightening new threshold into a world within our own. Its form is revealed. What is it? Its focus is clear. Scares you.
0: The Freeling family, consisting of parents Steve and Diane and their kids Dana, Robbie, and Carol Ann, live in the planned community of the suburb of Cuesta Verde. One night, their youngest daughter, Carol Ann, connects with an unknown presence in the TV static. Supernatural phenomenon begins to occur, which initially excites the Freelings. but once Carol Ann is sucked into her closet and Robbie is almost eaten by a tree, they decide to get help. They enlist a group of parapsychologists led by Dr. Lesh, who begins examining the occurrences which are unlike anything they've ever seen before. Dr. Lesh calls in Tangina Barron's, a medium to help get Carol Ann back. Meanwhile... Steve, a real estate developer, is told by his boss, Mr. Teague, that Cuesta Verde was built on a former site of a cemetery, but not to worry as they relocated the cemetery a few miles away. Tangina arrives and identifies multiple ghosts who are not at rest, as well as a fearsome creature called the Beast. Diane ventures into the ghostly dimension where Carol Ann is being held and returns with her daughter, and Tangina declares that the house is clean. The Freelings decide to move immediately, but on their final night in the house, Steve goes to the office, and the Beast attacks Diane, Robbie, and Carol Ann. Diane is thrown into the backyard that is being dug out for a pool and is soon surrounded by skeletons. She manages to break free and save the kids. Steve and Mr. Teague arrive in the midst of all of this, and Steve realizes that the headstones were moved, but the bodies weren't. As the house is sucked into another dimension, the Freelings flee the house for the last time.
1: Now, to start, I wanted to ask you, because I feel like I have seen poltergeist So many times. Mm. I feel like I sought it out uh, as a sleepover movie when I was younger. And, you know, this is scary. This is a scary family haunted house movie. It's been on TV. There have been random screenings throughout my life as a horror fan. However, upon this rewatch where I was actually really paying attention and trying to follow the mythology created within this film, I found it really came up short, and it wasn't quite as I remembered
0: it. Yeah, I mean, this isn't a film I have a huge personal history with. Mm-hmm. It lives kind of in that same space as Amityville for me, where it's more iconic than it has resonance for me personally. Uh-huh. Um, I know instances of it. I've definitely seen it. I think in my initial kind of, I'm going to watch everything horror that I can. That yeah, I through are ticking and off teams. the classics, yeah. And then I went to watch it a few years ago, and I don't know if I finished it. Okay. It just felt kind of long, and I think I found something else to do, and I was like, oh, I'll come back to it another time. Yeah. It's an
1: oddball, and it's an oddball from its very bones, so to speak. It's directed by Toby Hooper, who made his name with Texas Chainsaw Massacre, one of the nastiest, most nihilistic horror movies we have covered in the faculty of horror. It's a really... (laughs) Nasty little indie film. And then you've got Steven Spielberg producing, although people who worked on the show said that Spielberg largely called the shots and Hooper was largely fine with that. And so when I watch this film, I feel that pedigree. I feel that DNA. I feel... Toby Hooper's nastier qualities in some of the very horrific mm-hmm. scenes that happen in this film, but it also has Spielberg's heart. It has Spielberg's mm-hmm. wholesome, E.T. steeped American nuclear family in a nice suburb feel to it.
0: Absolutely. I think the kind of great mythology about the making of this film, Beyond the Curse, which we can talk about, but um, what I heard is that Toby Hooper was too coked out to actually direct it. So Steven Spielberg, actually directed it. Yeah. However, by multiple people on the set, this seems to be widely disproved, and it's just kind of an urban legend now. Yeah, it's a rumor. Um, I, But I agree with you, and, and from what I could take away from all the set reports, it was that Toby Hooper directed it, but Steven Spielberg was heavily involved. Mm-hmm. And when you have someone like Steven Spielberg, who's, you know, really coming into his own as a powerful force within the industry, coming in and wanting to be part of it, it's hard to say no to him. Sure. And he couldn't direct it himself, because of studio contracts and obligations and strikes and things like that mm-hmm. so a lot of stuff kind of got in the way from him taking the official title so i kind of see this film as a mashup between the two yeah it overwhelmingly reads to me very spielbergian yes i'm not a spielberg fan i find his films generally probably outside of jaws to be very cloying very manipulative yeah. kind of syrupy mm-hmm. it just doesn't appeal to me yeah um But I think, to your point, we see these kind of flashes of Hooper in the really kind of terrifying dark moments of this. And especially in the ending where order is not restored. Yeah. The house gets fucking sucked into another dimension. And as you see them flee in their car, you know, pipes are bursting. Things are on fire and everyone's kind of running out into the street. And Mm -hmm. they're not stopping to tell them, like— Shit, we're on a graveyard. They're
1: fucking out of there. That's right. And nothing seems to be happening to the other houses, which kind of leaves you with this sense of they will have perhaps their own situation. But again, that's part of the muddy interior logic that doesn't really work. And I want to get into that in a second. But I do have a hilarious anecdote about this film. Uh, I think you've heard it before. But once upon a time, the local rep cinema in Toronto, the Royal Cinema, had a slate of Halloween programming, a bunch of, you know, spooky movies. And I say spooky because not necessarily hard R horror, but they had this trailer that they used to show that had scenes from Poltergeist and scenes from Beetlejuice and, and scenes from these movies. And Dust Dustin and I went to a matinee this particular year, and the matinee was hosted by Spectacular Optical because they were putting out their kid Power book. You remember that? So Paul Korup had put together this matinee that was kid-friendly and bring your kids to watch the Bad News Bears. And so Dustin and I show up to this matinee and, you know, being the people that we are, we smoked a great big joint outside the cinema, and then we go in and we're like, okay, we're going to watch this silly horror movie, and we're nice and high and eating popcorn and all of a sudden that trailer for the royals halloween programming with all these scenes from poltergeist and i'm just watching it like okay this is a walk in the park for me and dustin's cracking up and i nudge him and i'm like what's so funny and he's like all these kids are gonna have fucking nightmares tonight (laughs) and i realized oh my god it's true some of these scenes are very horrific and sure enough at the end of it Everything is quiet, and you just hear a little girl's voice say, But what was that? And I cracked up just like how traumatized these kids must have been from some of those scenes. But I also have that Spielberg really fought for a PG rating in spite of the film's really gory bits, and it did pay off. Uh, This film made a ton of money. It was a huge box office success. And Ebert famously called it the movie the Amityville Horror dreamed of being. And so I think all these things kind of elevate this film to uh, the cultural phenomenon that it was. But upon the rewatch, it is a really muddy mythology. And when I try to bend my head around what actually happened, it's like— did Changina's efforts fail? Is that how you read that? That like, the house
0: was not clean? You know, in sitting down to think about this film, I have more questions than I have answers. I have some hypotheses. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think the notion of Tangina saying this house is clean and knowing, you know, from my watch, we got like 25 to 30 minutes left of this film to go. Well, yeah, like that <laughs> felt
1: very climactic. And yet there's this stinger ending that's very Hooperian.
0: And And I think that's kind of the tension of the film is, you know, and it's not addressed. So it just kind of reads as a bit of a weak spot for me is like, did Tangina, to her knowledge, clear the house? It's clean. It's good fine, we're leaving, by. Or, you know, was there some element of her that wasn't powerful enough to deal with it? And it's like, those are the kind of things that I feel could have used a sentence or two mm-hmm. of a character saying something, mm-hmm. and it would have just answered a question.
1: Yeah, a tidbit of knowledge that Tangina didn't know but should have known. But even when Tangina's around, there's there's muddy, like, run toward the light, run away from the light, and you come away with it not quite sure if she's full of shit.
0: But, I mean, who doesn't love Zelda Oh, i mean she's amazing i mean to quote our friends at the gay lords of darkness i think she is a perfect queen
1: you don't mind hanging back You're jamming my frequencies. Okay. You know, and then sequels do attempt to um, maybe address this, although in effect I think uh, sequels have made the mythology a little bit muddier. You know, you've got the introduction of this boogeyman cult leader in Poltergeist 2, the other side, Reverend Kane, who, you know, uh, sealed up his followers in a cavern underneath the Freeling House, which again kind of like undoes the um, IBG aspect of the first one. However, in Poltergeist 2, they also consult an indigenous shaman uh, who wants to help these white people for no apparent reason, which is another misused trope in horror. And then in Poltergeist 3 from 1988, uh, you've got the Freelings trying life in the city, but Kane follows them and continues to fuck with Carol Ann through the building's many mirrors.
0: And I mean, it's not even her parents anymore. Like, they just ship Carol Ann off to, I think it's her aunt and uncle. That's right,
1: yeah. In Poltergeist 3 has its own really interesting production history. I'm very good friends with Gary Sherman, who wound up directing it. He wasn't interested in the franchise, and they were like, if you direct this film, you can do whatever you want. And he is a huge tech nerd, Mm -hmm. and so he took it as an opportunity to really do some spectacular in-camera effects with mirrors. And he did a Black Museum lecture that we hosted here in Toronto that was spectacular and made me see the film through a whole new light. I believe he has repeated that lecture through other venues. I will look for it, and if I can find a link, I will. It was great. But yeah, and that was also the last film that featured Heather O'Rourke because, tragically, she passed before shooting ended, and so that's her chapter of this particular franchise. But I want to talk more about what the fuck is a poltergeist, like from the very beginning.
0: My understanding is a poltergeist is like a noisy spirit or entity.
1: Yes, that is the literal translation, the literal etymology of the term. Polter in German is to make sound or rumble, and geist is a ghost or spirit. So a noisy ghost is the literal translation. And having seen this movie as a kid, I thought I was clear as day on it. I thought a poltergeist was a spirit that possessed it inanimate objects and that fucked Mm. with items more so than people. And I was sure of that, but not so much the case. I mean the film talks about a poltergeist haunting a person and not a place. And I feel like that was an attempt to draw a distinction from what was happening to the freelings. It's not a haunted house. It is a ghost that is haunting a person. And certainly in subsequent entries, uh, Carol Ann appears to be the nexus of this. But I still don't have a really great grasp of exactly what a poltergeist is. And I think that's because, you know, this film is called Poltergeist. And so we look to it to be uh, the template for what that particular ghoul is. But I don't get it.
0: I think it's kind of meant to be amorphous. Like everything that kind of happens within this film, I feel like it has its tentacles out to other elements of horror mm-hmm. um, like there's cosmic horror, spiritual horror body horror, there's all kinds of things happening in there and they needed to kind of pull from Terry Jean who I was talking about in our last film they needed kind of a catch all mm-hmm. they needed something that like oh we want to do all this spooky shit and what about this scene and what about that and what about this and would that be scary or cool or interesting and they just kind of needed this catch all ghost thing yeah. that would hold it all But, I mean, my theory is that it all kind of starts with them digging out their backyard for the pool.
1: Yeah, okay. And is is that why only that house was afflicted? Yeah, and
0: that as they dug in— to To the ground more, kind of unearth something and unlock something. Yeah. Because I think, to your point, as Tangina says at one point in the film, you know, there's something about Carol Ann and they're really drawn to her energy. Carol Ann, the closet, like there's all these kind of red herrings. And the tree. And yeah. Like, there's all this stuff. And, and they elaborate it more in the second and third films, but it's still, again, it's all pretty wishy washy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know what? To be really honest and vulnerable with everyone here right now, I'm not sure. What It's not that damn bird. (laughs) Okay, the bird. Let's talk about the bird. You don't think Tweety's behind all this? Was it Tweety?
1: <laughs> I think this family has bigger problems if they're naming their pet bird Tweety.
0: Well, they're deeply unoriginal people. That's the true tragedy of this film.
1: I want to come back to Tweety, but my search for essentializing what a poltergeist is took me outside my normal research sources. I actually listened to a conspiracy podcast ooh, called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Oh, dear. And I consulted the PSI encyclopedia, which is the Society of Psychicals research. I'm struggling with the word psychical. It doesn't want to come out of me. Um, But according to the PSI encyclopedia, the poltergeist is characterized by messing with objects, communicating via knocks and rapping, but also, quote, mischievous intent. And, you know, I think this is kind of a PG film in that we don't see anyone like immolated. We don't see anyone dismembered. Um, The Freeling family gets out okay, albeit a little bit traumatized. And the PSI encyclopedia also names... Carrie and the Exorcist as poltergeist activity, but Carrie has no ghost, and the Exorcist, to me, was a straightforward possession, so I I don't want to spend too, too much time on this, but I feel like even the experts don't fucking know.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think kind of the notion of poltergeist in use of this film is kind of like the Trojan horse. So they can say off the top, yeah, it's a noisy, you know, fucky ghost. But it's because they want to have, like, a reveal of the beast. Right. So that Tangina can come in and be like, like Okay, there's a lot of unrested spirits here, but there's also something really scary. Yeah. And then so when you get the final reveal of the Beast at the end, they want to save some shit for the end. So you, I don't know if you could get away with calling this film The Beast. Definitely not. Which you could if it was season five of Real Housewives of Beverly Hills. I knew you were going to... When Kim Richards calls Eileen Davidson a beast. Shut, Shut your, your f***ing mouth. That's Excuse not enough of you me. beast. Beast? Yeah. How dare you. It's great. All right. Who thought this was going to turn into a Real Housewives episode? I did. Every single
1: time we record, I'm like, how is she going to tie this in? i have been
0: fair. waiting for eight years and i finally <laughs> done it. I didn't think it was, but uh, Real Housewives are very intrinsic to this whole topic.
1: It was a good quote. I can't deny that.
0: Beast. Beast. So maybe let's kind of kick off in the way that we did with Amityville by talking about the history and, and the reasoning behind this house. Mm-hmm. In this case, Cuesta Verde is the planned community in which this film takes place. Great name translates to this green. <laughs> <laughs> it's. It was it's, absolutely it's, not a placeholder name. this green. So a planned community, for anyone who doesn't know, and I certainly had to look this up for myself, is a designed community on previously underdeveloped land, and it is organized and executed by developers rather than an organic movement of people. So it's not a community of people moving somewhere because it's close to water. It's great farming land. You know, in this space where we are in our history as humans, we've expanded enough that it It can be like, all right, well, that land's empty. We're going to build there and people, frankly, a lot of white people are going to come and buy property. Mm -hmm. And in the U.S., planned communities have actually existed since 1565. Um, They were some of the earliest forms of development, but they became way more formalized in the 20th century as more and more people were here and more and more people needed to expand. During industrialization, they were built around where workers worked at plants, factories, etc., but in later decades it became much more of rare space that people can spread out have families, and what's a generally easy commute to a kind of city center or something like that where people would have to go in and work. In the 1960s, with suburbs and the white flight already well underway, planned communities were established within already established suburbs to accommodate the demand. Uh, we've talked about white flight on this mm-hmm. podcast before, the notion that uh, white people were scared off by urbanization and wanted to go where it was, quote unquote, safer. Safe yeah and i feel like you know as much as we're talking about poltergeist and uh you know what is a poltergeist and what's what's really happening within this film there's a specter that hangs over this film that, to me, is more terrifying than any supernatural entity, Ronald Reagan. Yes. And I think we get into this because it's not like, you know, Cuesta Verde and the Freeling House is some, you know, horrifying, haunted place. It is very bland. It's kind of anonymous. But... It's really indebted to the notions that Reagan would come to embody and what he uh, set in motion during his presidency. There's a really great article we're going to link in the show notes uh, from Salon called Reaganomics Killed America's Middle Class. And this is by Tom Hartman. Hartman writes that the middle class shouldn't exist in a capitalist system. Capitalism lends itself to having wealthy elite, a mercantile class, doctors, lawyers, shop owners, who keep things moving for the elite and serve basic needs of the poor. Now, the wealthy elite and the mercantile class occupy about 10% of the population. Beneath them, 90% 90% of the population make up what is called the working poor. Does this all check out in your sociology, Feminist Marxism? It checks out to my everyday reality. Now, the working poor, they have no wealth, they are in debt, and can barely make ends meet. Sounds like pretty much everyone check, I know. Check and check. In the post-World War II period, the government was much more involved in everyday aspects of life, um, there were really high taxes on the wealthy, and industries were regulated, meaning that barriers to entry and industry were high, and that prices were controlled for what people could charge for goods and services. Hartman cites General Motors as being the largest employer in America um, in this kind of post World War II period and adjusted for today's inflation. The working poor workers who are at GM were paid $50 an hour. In 1981, Reagan began cutting taxes and the process of deregulation with a goal of this term makes me shudder, everyone, oh. but quote unquote raw economics. Mm. AKA Reaganomics or supply side economics. The result is that in 2014, America's largest employer, and uh, we talked about them in the last film, is Walmart. Want to guess what Walmart pays the working poor hourly? Fifty dollars an hour, ten dollars an hour. And the thing about deregulation is, it was meant to provide obviously less barriers to entry, more competition in the market. And the thing is, on the outset, those things tend to work. But as industry falls away, as circumstances change, they almost always work against the communities and the consumer. Mm -hmm. So we're back in this really dark place of, you know, there were a lot of airlines. Now there's a few airlines that give really poor service at bad times. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's a really complicated economic thing, and that I've distilled, I think, hopefully, very simply. But it's really fucking scary. And to me, the house in Cuesta Verde has a really layered haunting to it. There are not only the unmoved graves, but there's also the beast and Tweedy, who I've not forgotten about. As we just mentioned, the beast in the sequels is revealed to be the Reverend Henry Kane. But I think. The horror, particularly in the climax of the film, stems from the mom, Diane, as she falls into that kind of dug up pool pit mm-hmm. and it's muddy and it's raining and she just can't get out of it. And these skeletons start popping up all around her. And it's really freaky. Yeah. You know, outside of some of the clown stuff, it's it's quite upsetting. Yeah, The clown stuff is really upsetting, too. I'm Ugh. glad you brought it up. But I think in this case, obviously, because as we discussed, these corpses are not part of the IBG trope, but the corpses can still be read as a larger question of land ownership. And due to the specter of Reagan in this film, as the lives of the working class people who would never be able to afford this kind of lifestyle, Mm. but whose subservience, um, through no fault of their own, allows the Freelings to have this life. Yeah. Fun fact,
1: I grew up in such a planned community. Mm. It was called Hunt Club and the oh. Yeah. And the block that I lived on was actually the block of model homes. So they were homes that were built to just showcase the different shapes that they would build houses in this area. And so as a result, you know, uh some of the structural stuff was not built to last. It was like when you go to a sample sale and stuff. Oh you know, wasn't yeah, yeah. made quite up to par. It was just to showcase do your what could still be. Live there? They do, and you know, my dad is actually really handy. He's not like Ryan Reynolds shredded handy, but like he built onto it and improved it. And they do still live there, and that house will be standing long after we are all dead, I'm sure. Um, I should
0: also mention that poltergeist in a kind of way, is vaguely based on a quote-unquote true story. Oh! It's an article I found today in, that was published in, on Nerdist. So we'll link this in the show notes because it is actually kind of interesting. But it's based on uh, what they called the Herman House. Again, well-to-do couple, a few kids, and these, like, kind of random supernatural things were happening, seemingly targeting the kids. Mm. Um, and they fled. Then this happened in 1958. Oh, wow. And how to tie it all together is um, the Herman House was approximately seven miles from the Amityville house. Holy shit. Yeah. The little grifter community there. <laughs> Can we talk more about Tweety? I would love to.
1: I feel like there's a lot of little interesting seeds about this film that that I'll maybe like throw in toward the end of the episode. Threads that didn't quite follow or whatever, but are, are just kind of interesting. But I thought that the earliness and, and the treatment of the dead bird was really interesting.
0: I did too. I think a lot of fuss is kind of made about the burial of Tweety and then how... As soon as they start digging up the space for the pool, the the burial box, you the of... box comes up. It's foreshadowing. Yeah, yeah. I was much more interested in Carol Ann's whole kind of emotional journey. Yes, with Tweety, um, because and her she... mom's enabling of that yes. journey. Yeah. Because, you know, the, the bird dies, the mom's upset. Carol Ann catches the mom trying to flush the bird. Couldn't it have happened after school started where I could just sweep this under the rug? But it doesn't. And so Carol Ann makes this whole meal about... Oh, this bird, I'm so upset, and we've got to find the right box for it, and here's this flower, and here's a photo, mm-hmm. so Tweety remembers us in hell. You know, it's it's a whole fucking thing. And you know what? This is my problem with Spielberg. I was falling for it for a second. yeah. Looking at my cats and you know crushing them to my body and they were like, Aah. but then and this is where I saw that flash of Hooper. Yeah. Whereas they kind of bury Tweety and she's like, okay, bye Tweety, and then she just looks up at her mom with this big fucking grin mm-hmm. and bright eyes and says, "Can I get a goldfish?" Yeah. And I was like, oh my god, it's Reaganomics and a child. <laughs>
1: I feel like the Spielbergian heart and light in this film it really comes through with that scene. I mean, prior to the disinterring the unceremonious disinterring of the Tweety Bird. But even the paranormal investigator who really gets close to the mom, they get really sappy and they have this whole— affirming of an afterlife thing, the idea that loved ones await in another realm. And in a death-phobic society, it's a really comforting, sweet, sweet fairy tale. And Tangina speaks of spirits who envied Carol Ann's life force because they didn't like being dead or didn't know that they were. And that conjures this sympathetic tragedy, but... In the end, it feels like they're pussyfooting around a subject that could have been a lot more meaningful.
0: Well, yeah. And you know what? Frankly, I know the film is in the series is like, oh, the beast is Reverend Henry Kane or whatever. You will not be able to persuade me that the beast is not fucking Tweety. (laughs) You know, pets, you know, the looks my cats give me when I sleep in more than five minutes past their breakfast. Looks like the goddamn beast at the end of this film. Do you think it was, like, vengeance for the uh, goldfish remark? I think it was a layered vengeance, as this film is a layered haunting. Mm -hmm. Letting Tweety die, Mm -hmm. almost flushing uh, it down the toilet, and then Carol Ann's, you know, Wanting of a goldfish.
1: And she 100% kills those goldfish almost immediately. She food. way overfeeds it. And they're just kind of
0: like, that's fine. You know what? Carol Ann is the true monster of this <laughs> film. The little serial killer in the making. The poltergeist was trying to stop her with the animal killings. When she was in the other dimension, did another animal die? I, I don't, don't think, think so. so. Gross. Another anxiety
1: that I feel reflected in this film, and anxiety that I feel like is kind of teased at, but not fully, fully realized, is there is an apprehension about modernity. There is an apprehension about suburban life, but also about technology. And I discovered in my yucky, yucky research that real-life poltergeist reports went down sharply after the technological revolution, which is interesting. And I feel like Poltergeist is positing the idea that there are unseen forces that we're okay with because they benefit us and they make our lives easier, and then there are these others that we don't quite understand but are still among us. And in the film, like, there's the emphasis on the TV static, the deadline, but there's also a lot of remote control devices around. Uh, The remote control cars in the beginning, blinking robots, and the TV remotes that are controlling their neighbor's
0: devices. The remotes are... 100% a metaphor for their dicks. They are
1: such assholes to each other about that. And it's like, dudes, if your remotes are changing each other's channels, be kind to each other about it. But I feel like it just reflects this entitlement of this is my house and what happens in my house. It's like, well, we're sharing a signal, but we can't share it. We have to fight over it because we're dicks.
0: I think it goes into that remote scene between um, Steve and his neighbor. Yeah. It just goes into that notion of the artificiality of the planned community. Mm. Uh, Like, these aren't neighbors in the best sense of the word. They are people who, you know, live their own lives, but will jump in and help and care and share parts of their lives together. These are people who are adversaries, which is a very real part of kind of modern life. For sure. People who
1: are trying to live their best life is often at odds with the people who are right next door to you. If you want peace and quiet and they want a party, that's a problem but you're all entitled to it with this home and this promise of the American dream.
0: Exactly, and I think it kind of goes back to what Catherine Adams was saying in her book. You know, privacy has this aura of the aristocracy to Mm. it, and we're being sold it through these planned communities. Like, here's your beautiful house and your beautiful lawn, but, oh shit, you're still in the mercantile class or, you know, below it because you actually don't have very much autonomy within it. Right, strings attached. Yeah, I also thought it was really interesting in speaking about the television that the instances at the beginning of the film when Carol Ann first comes into contact with whatever it is um happens when the programming stops yes uh there's nothing being kind of put forward there's you know at that time there's only a few channels there's not all of the channels and screens that we have I don't almost
1: wonder if younger viewers are even going to be able to make sense of that, that like at the end of a TV station's programming, they would play the national anthem. Yeah. With some, like in Canada, I, I feel like it was just footage of the flag. Yeah. And then there would be snow.
0: Yeah. And this is kind of where I think there is an interesting tension of, okay, well, you've let this thing into your house and we've in some ways been controlling what you are seeing because you have access to these amount of channels and you will watch whatever is on there. And then when it goes dark, what is left? What is Coming through it. Um, the remake of Poltergeist, which I again also watched this week, has minor things. They try to say stuff about it with a family constantly on multiple screens, on phones, on iPads, what uh, have you, on top uh-huh. of television. It didn't really lead very far for me, but I think that's the evolution we can see. But I did find it interesting that there is this technology existing within a house that, as soon as it's not controlled, becomes a portal to something else. Right. But, Andrea. Yes. When you were a kid, did you watch a lot of TV? Yeah. I loved my TV. (laughs) My TV was like my best fucking friend. It was... Amazing! It was just the best. I loved watching TV as a kid. I still fucking love it. But I remember there was this kind of fear about me spending too much time watching TV. Yes. Uh, we were of that generation
1: that? where, you know, for, for our parents, it was like, oh, innovative new technology where we can watch the news and be informed and all the good, good, good. And then we were born and it was kind of like, oh, we can't let our kids have too much of this or they'll be fucked up.
0: Yeah. You know, I was looking into this a bit and really since the 1940s, 40s, when, you know, the first TVs and, you know, radios were circulating and kind of getting into homes, um, there was always an anxiety, especially kids having access to these things. What is the kind of content they're watching? Mm-hmm. And then what is the effect of staring at a screen for mm-hmm. X amount of hours a day? And I still see a lot of that with some people I know who are parents. You know, I only let my kid have X amount of screen time per day. Yeah. And it must be a nightmare. I can't even control myself.
1: No, God, no. <laughs> Much less someone else who's
0: bored and hyper and, like, full of sugar. Dear God, no. But I definitely, I remembered that feeling, and I think that Poltergeist kind of, in a subtle way, really plays with it. And that really led me to think about how the kids are really targets within this film. Obviously, Carol Ann, but also her slightly older brother, Robbie. Mm-hmm. And so that led me to think about how this film, to me, has real undertones of the Stranger Danger. Panic of the Uh, 1980s. uh And Stranger Danger kind of turned into the satanic panic as well. It all had ties to that, you know, and it was huge in culture in the 80s, you know, everything from movies to TV episodes to PSAs to uh, comic books, comic books, things being sent home from school. Mm -hmm. And I found a really good article about this whole topic and kind of reevaluating it from, you know, a contemporary lens on Jezebel. And this article, again, linked in the show notes, called Half True Crime, Why the Stranger Danger Panic of the 80s Took Hold and Refuses to Let Go by Rich jeswiak And jeswiak goes on to talk about this article that was published in the Denver Post in 1985. And eventually, this article actually won the Pulitzer Prize. And this article... It kind of took apart the claim that at the time in the 80s 1.5 million children were going missing due to stranger danger and being abducted and the journalist who wrote the article diana grigo and lewis kilzer revealed that in 1984 the fbi had repeated blank amount of cases of children who went missing andrea how many cases do you think they had 50 cases. You're close, 67. Oh. So, how do you get from 67 cases? to 1.5 million cases. A lot of what happened was the conflation of runaways. Uh, Kids who were running away from really bad situations. It's not like if a kid ran away uh, seven times, it counts as one instance. If a kid runs away seven times, it counts as seven. That's seven runaways. You know, with family structures breaking down and economic hardships, there's a lot of, you know, trauma and abuse and things that kids were really trying to get away from. So it's a really horrifying situation on so many levels, but mainly because all of this was kind of hung on this hanger of stranger danger and not actually addressing root problems. The problem, yeah. However, Reagan is president at this point, and he really sees his role As a president, and this is part of what he runs on and governs with, as a purpose to rebuild and strengthen the American family, and that's a heavy asterisk with the white, heteronormative, Mm -hmm. able-bodied American family. It's implied. We get you. I know, but, you know, you like to say these things because he's an asshole, and I hope he's in pain wherever he is. And stranger danger became kind of integral to all of this Reagan-ness, that they were pumping out into the world became intertwined with legislation. It became intertwined with policy and a lot of public discourse at this time. Now, Jeswiak talks to a fellow by the name of Joel Best, who is a professor of sociology and criminal justice at the University of Delaware. Best says, We take our anxieties about the future and we translate them into efforts to protect children. We have this sense that the future is uncertain. Children are the walking and talking future. We seize on protecting children as a way of saying, we can do this. To me, the primary target of this film and the franchise is ultimately Carol Ann. And so many moral panics are centered around saving children, um, whether it's the Salem witch trials, the Satanic Panic in the 80s, which we're talking about, or QAnon. All of these things have confluence, multiple things leading to them. But at their core, people always hang their hat on well, we want to save children, we want to protect kids. That's yeah. why I believe this crazy shit. Mm-hmm. And this notion of protecting children becomes really intertwined with a lot of really dark, dark messy shit.
1: Yeah, exactly the kind of shit you want to protect children from. And that's a dark rabbit hole that I started encountering in my research about this subject. I was like, you know, what is a poltergeist if it is a spirit that attaches to people? Like, I followed that down. I was like, oh yeah, it's kind of paranormal activity mm-hmm. type thing, but they don't ever use that word. And so in doing my research of my atypical sources, which is to say, you know, podcasts and paranormal fucking shit. I'm so sorry if you like that stuff. I just I don't. And this is part of the reason why I discovered that, you know, the majority of the time reported cases of poltergeists are debunked as mischievous kids trying to get attention. And their gullible slash uneducated parents would rather embellish the story than admit that their kid was able to scare the shit out of them and dupe them. And, you know, now that we Know more about mental illness, schizophrenia. Hearing voices doesn't lead us straight to demonic possession as it once did. But what bothered me about this research was the idea of kids will contrive ways to be heard, especially girls. And I listened to a, a podcast called Occult Confessions, and I'm not entirely sure if I would recommend this podcast. I will link to it if you're interested, but. Um, it was recommended to me because it was like uh, the connection between poltergeists and pubescent girls. And I was like, that's interesting. And so I listened to this show and it's silly. The hosts are horsing around a little more than I'd like when they're dealing with such subject matter, but they did seem well qualified to discuss the topic. And um, I, I got some tidbits out of it that when it comes to real investigated poltergeists two-thirds of the time, the quote-unquote agent, the target of the spirit, if they could be identified at all, was identified as a woman under 20. And the show focused on five cases of the 20th century, because those cases have more details to analyze, but it also touched upon figures like Joan of Arc, you know. And the episode culminates in this idea that these women contain energies but are culturally repressed and so the paranormal provides an outlet for this energy that comes out as quote unquote lady magic. I'm Stop trying it. really hard not to be condescending but like lady magic? Fucking lady magic. Uh, something about their energy manifests in an occult way and you it's know. It's
0: like I'm fucking watching the Conjuring 3 all over again. This I is more why alcohol?
1: occult studies like it doesn't make sense to me on so many levels. Paras- science. Science is all about empiricism and all about measuring veracity based on what you can empirically observe, and paranormal things are the opposite of that. So I really feel like parascience is antithetical within itself. Anyway... This all brought me to a fellow named Frank Podmore. And if you want to talk about people who you hope are in pain, uh, Frank Podmore came up with something that he called the naughty little girl theory.
0: Ooh, let's, uh, I feel like wherever we're going, let's put a little content warning on this shit.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's going to get kind of dark. And and then granted, Frank Podmore was working in the late 1800s. This is a long time ago, but this is when poltergeists weren't considered psychic phenomenon, just people exhibiting mental and physical, quote, abnormalities which included, quote, defective character traits like deception and cunning, when deception and cunning are like medicalized. To be abnormal. And you know, it was rooted in the Victorian idea that women and children were mentally very fragile. And the funny thing is, he was the resident skeptic of the society of psychical research that I mentioned before. He was the one who was like, well, you know, let's look at reality, and I'm the one really rooted in reality. And so to maintain the scientific integrity of his paranormal investigations of poltergeists, they tied girls up and restrained them to prove or disprove their shit. And he also went. Went on record as noting that the poltergeist was most often observed among the lower classes who were too stupid to realize that an ordinary explanation of what was happening was the case. Now, I see all these things, and I, I'm sure you're thinking the same thing. I can see it on your face. I'm not saying that girls didn't or don't lie for attention. I'm saying that the problem is that they should feel the need to lie in order to be heard, especially when it comes to circumstances of being frightened, feeling threatened, and possibly assaulted or abused. And I think the correlation between young pubescent girls and these disturbances quite clearly points to cries for help. I feel like I'm having a rage stroke right now. I know. I know. And I I, I was angry. I was in the same place. And anyway, let's take it back to the movie. Carol Ann is too young to be sexualized. And she's considered the most tempting target of the evil spirits due to her purity, which is still a patriarchal, fucking icky, sexist slash shit.
0: kind of general life force. Well, that's what they say. That is. But
1: like, it's not a thing. Robbie is not not innocent. He's almost as young, and, like, why Carol Ann? It's because she's a little fucking mm. girl. and Which actually gives me to my point about Dana, the older teen I would like sister. to talk about Dana, yeah. yeah, because I didn't catch this in the last umpteen times I've seen this film, but Dana is quite fairly sexualized. She's yeah. not in the film very much, but when she is, in the opening sequence, we see her biting a pickle. We see her responding to sexual harassment with a kind of knowing... Crudeness. Like Mm -hmm. that scene is really icky to me is that she's used to this. And the mom laughs it off. Yeah. As opposed to being like, get the fuck off my property. These are her employees working, and she, oh, boys will be boys, but girls will
0: be sex objects, even for fucking predatory
1: ghosts.
0: When uh, Dana comes out at the end because she's missed the whole final night at the Freeline house because she was on a date, she stumbles out of a car only to see her family kind of running out of this house and is like, oh my God, what's going on? Did you notice the big fucking hickey on her neck i didn't yeah huge fucking hickey on her neck and i was just like what is happening what is happening and obviously like all four dana um sexuality and consensual and like that's cool that's cool it's this film treating her as less than because she is closer to of age slash semi-sexual slash getting in touch with her own bodies and desires. It draws such a stark line between her and
1: Carolyn. Carolyn is the target of this spirit because of her purity. Dana, they're not interested because she's doing her thing.
0: Yeah. But let's talk about
1: Diane. Strikingly hot mom. Before MILF was even a trope, uh, she's the pot-smoking cool mom. She's getting watched in the bath before she's assaulted by the ghost who pulls up her T-shirt. And then there was that little factoid that you brought up before we (laughs) recorded— And you were like, I don't know if this factors into anything, but I think it does.
0: Yeah. So in watching the film, as I am watching any film these days, and I'm 35 currently, about to turn 36. and, And I was like, I wonder how fucking old these people are, meaning Diane and Steve. Well, because they're so posited as like the cool folks
1: who we can move to the suburbs and still be cool. We're with it. We're hip.
0: And they also have three kids and enough, you know, equity to buy a house and are seemingly really comfortable. She stays home. Exactly. She's not selling Tupperware or whatever the fuck else they did in the (laughs) 80s. Um, It just occurred to me because I I just thinking about that, in the back of my mind, I wonder how old they are. That's interesting because obviously I'm about to turn 36 and I rent an apartment and I feel very grateful to do so. And then when Steve goes to see Dr. Lesh for the first time, they're asking him about his relationship and he says, my wife is 31. No, wait, she just turned 32. And I went, I wonder how old that makes Dana. And then when I went to go write my synopsis, uh, oftentimes I'll do like a quick fact check with like IMDb or Wikipedia. She did the fucking math. I did the math, guys. And it says on Wikipedia that Dana is 16 years old. So if Diane is 32 and Dana is 16, and I see no evidence in the film that Dana is um, a child from Steve's previous marriage, if I'm wrong about that, correct me. Um, But that would mean Diane had Dana when she was 16. Which, fine.
1: Cool. No tea, no shade, but... What it prompts in me, and again, this is tying back to Amityville, is I almost wonder if these films are an indictment of a newfangled kind of family, you know, like outside of the uh, traditional nuclear family, we've got the Lutzes, who are a blended family, and then we've got the Freelings, who smoke pot and had a kid really, really young. These aren't your leave-it-to-beaver nuclear families.
0: Well, I think we should say that I don't think it was out of the ordinary, particularly 100 plus years ago to have a kid at 16 100 plus years younger. ago you know i think you know you were having kids as soon as you were able to but i think within this kind of american dream-esque thing oh yeah that they're operating within that that is probably a like Ooh. not in the suburban 80s exactly. and the fact just that it qualify. was
1: it was just kind of a footnote in this film that he would even bother to mention her age and you were able to crunch those numbers <laughs> it took all of 10 seconds guys. i know it was a lot for me but you And when you told me that, I was just kind of like, I have to wonder if these families are being punished for not being perfect enough.
0: I wouldn't argue with that, especially because Dana is so sidetracked throughout the whole film. Mm -hmm. And yet she has these moments that as a woman, I I was like, whoa, the pool guys are talking to you like that? Yeah. You know how to respond like that? Oh, God. And then her stumbling out of the car as this almost forgotten footnote to the story with this huge hickey on on her neck like a punchline yeah I was like,
1: no. But we're more worried about Carol Ann because she represents yeah. the purity and the future. And there's a whole lot of ick. And I hate to bring it into this podcast, but
0: we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about this ick. Exactly. And I, and I think on top of the ick, kind of, you know, leaning into the Diane staying at home and her role within the household. She is so intrinsic to catching on to the supernatural entity from the offset. And she it's she because she's at it. home. Yeah. If she wasn't at home, it's the greatest... Great moment in the film and, and it's truly, I think, such a well done moment that I've seen ripped off enough times. But you know, she looks at the chairs, why are the chairs pulled out? Ann, don't do that. Mm. You know, she looks, she goes back to do something camera pans and now they're all stacked on top of each that other. That is really well done. An amazing scene. Yeah. All practical, people rushing around in the background to do it. So effective. I love that moment. However, that moment is not possible unless you have someone at home doing domestic labor. Yeah. And that is rarely, I don't think at all, addressed in the film. Except in, in this moment that I think only some really open-minded, empathetic people would read that when Steve comes home that night, he and Carol Ann are kind of in tandem whining about where's dinner. And Diane is like, no, there's a supernatural entity here. I want to show you. <laughs> and they're like, no, dinner. I'm hungry. Blah, blah, blah. And then what starts to happen, then, you know, Steve gets into it. But it was like there's a real like fuck you, where's my food Yeah, moment. You're not doing your job. That feels really weird and I did not care for I it. I think
1: it's a product of its time, but it is also an indictment of this suburban American dream.
0: To me, it is. To me, it is. And that's why there is no other conclusion to this film than that horrible house be sucked into another horrifying portal. And um, the Freelings, I thought it was interesting that they um, had to go stay in what would look to be, to me, like a motel. It's not yeah. a hotel.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: And again, it, it's part of my overall question about these two films of like, these films don't address what the families do after they've lost their home. Mm-hmm. And like to lose your home. I've lost my home. Yeah. My apartment burned down in 2013. Mm-hmm. And that is financially destabilizing, emotionally destabilizing. It, it's really like a fucked up thing to happen. It's a really fucked up thing to happen to anyone. And that's kind of what, you know, I was wondering about watching these films is it's like, yes. And how much money you got in your checking account? Mm -hmm. How much credit do you have? Where is your family and friends? Who are you going to go stay with? Like, you know, maybe it's just me, but having been through it, it's like, no, there's a list of fucking things that need to happen. You know, it's not just George and Kathy and their family escaped and, you know, Steve and Diane went to the motel sticks. It's there's shit that goes on Mm -hmm. that isn't much deeper than this and and i feel like by not showing us that these films oversimplify yeah. what's actually happening and, and all of the stuff they've set up
1: yeah on the one hand they're showing the corruption of the sanctity of the home but on the other hand in the same breath there's no aftermath there's just sequels where it happens again and again to these poor goddamn freelings
0: yeah so i do want to touch briefly on the poltergeist curse yes um there is so much urban legendy mythos around these films I don't want to get into it really and we haven't really because I don't think either of us really buy into it I will say that the series cursed films by Jay Cheel does a really good job of examining the poltergeist curse yeah that's and on shutter it's on shutter and it debunks it and really talks about why we need to believe in these kind of things and the kind of onus we put on to content like this mm-hmm. so I would say if that Something you're really keen on hearing. We're not getting into it, obviously. So please, you know, check out Shudder. If you don't already have it, get the free trial and check out Curse Films. It's a really interesting series. And that episode in particular was really well done. And I would like to end on a little factoid. I love a factoid. I know you do. So this is my kind of contribution to the Faculty of Horror IMDb Wiki Trivia. And if we're going to take Amityville Horror and Poltergeist as kind of sibling cousin interwoven, pieces of content. I think we should. You know how the Amityville Horror stars margot kidder yes to my delight to everyone's delight because she is amazing um and you know how poltergeist had a remake yes came out i believe in 2015 i rewatched it this week it's very bland it has a really good cast and it doesn't really know what to do with itself and you know it's fine and i remember seeing it in theaters and it was so bland i actually forgot all of this and i was rewatching it this week and it gets to the end of the film and sorry spoilers for poltergeist 2015 it ends with the freelings kind of getting away um, what i did like about the poltergeist remake is instead of a kind of Tangina-esque figure, they have another psychic medium who's played by Jared Harris. Ooh, I love I love him. I can't believe exactly. he's in that. Again, it's an incredible cast. Oh it's a God. really good cast in that film. And what happens is he kind of cleans the house in a way, and then the climax of the film happens as he's leaving oh. so that he's able to reintervene. Oh, cool. And so he's actually like a much bigger part of the, the structure of the mythology. Okay. But even then, the mythology is wishy-washy. Anyway, that all happens, and the final scene of the film is the Freelings going to a new kind of house to check it out and maybe buy it because. They need a house. They need a house, but also they don't have money, slash, don't worry about it. Anyway, (laughs) uh, the realtor of the house is played by one Molly Kidder, who I went to theater school with, who is absolutely lovely, very talented, incredibly funny, and the niece of Margot. Oh, look at that. Full circle! (laughs) I did it! This episode is clean. Oh, yes! (laughs) Yes!
1: I love that. Well, I think this episode is clean, and I think, uh, you know, we don't do seasons in the Faculty of Horror, but we are looking down the barrel of our annual sabbatical. Alex, how are you going to spend your month off?
0: Um, Prepping for other Faculty
1: of Horror stuff, frankly. (laughs) Same, same, same. But happily, happily. Happy to do it. Toronto's opening up, so uh, we don't have to
0: do all of our hanging out in this room for a little bit. We'll get some nice meals in. Oh, we should mention current plans. We've booked tickets. We are going to be at Salem Horror Fest. We're going back. That is the plan. We've booked our tickets. Knock wood. Knocking my head She's right now. She's knocking her head because her head is made of wood. It is. Andrea built me from a leg of a table. A haunted leg of a table. And that's why I'm her forever girl. Full of lady magic. Okay. Uh, but we are going back. So uh, the weekend of October 8th, we're going to be doing our 100th episode. I can't even. 100 episodes. Wow. Our lady magic. <laughs> that is our lady magic. So anyway, we will link Salem Horror uh, in the show notes if you're able to. uh. We would love to see you. It's a very—I'm
1: not going to say very small. It's an intimate fest, and every time we go do our live show, uh, we make sure that we have time to spend with you, meeting you, uh,
0: taking photos, and hanging out, and I can't fucking wait. We're both double vaxxed. We're super excited. Mm -hmm. It's going to be great. But before then, Andrea, what about a dinner party? A dinner party? Well, what precedes a dinner party? An invitation. Uh Oh. So for our September episode, we made this very special, and we actually put it to our patrons over on Patreon, where you can get us if you want to. You don't have to. It's all cool. Um, And we took a mixture of films that we've been wanting to talk about and a mixture of films you guys have been wanting to talk about, Uh and we put it to a boat. We said, you guys pick our September episode. Uh Uh-huh. And you sure did. It was
1: a big winner by a big margin, which is wild because last time we did a Patreon vote, it was
0: quite close. And that was for another kind of Patreon feed only episode. And it was like back and forth, 49, 51. So close. Uh, But this one, Karen Kasuma's The Invitation. Overwhelming winner. And I can't wait. I'm very excited. Yeah. I love that goddamn movie. Mm -hmm. It's so great and so creepy. And the perfect film to talk about as we all maybe re-enter society, question mark? Awkward. We don't know how to act. I already hate everyone. Um, (laughs) But again, grateful to be safe, grateful for masks, grateful to be double vaxxed. Grateful for you. We are taking August off
1: to chill a bit. Um, Patreon content will still come out as regularly planned, but you will see us in September and you will see us in October at Salem Horror Fest. So make your plans. We would really love to see you. But until back to school.
0: Office hours are closed.
3: I will give you more when I get paid again. I hate those people who love to tell you money is the root of all the kills. They have never been poor, they have never had the joy of a Christmas. Yeah. Oh, I know we will never i